It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. I want to start this episode by bringing up the topic of really popular misconceptions. And one of the most, I think, prevalent and powerful misconceptions around vegans that has persisted and gained a lot of momentum, I think, especially... I'd say over the past maybe 10 years or so, 15 years as the vegan lifestyle and the vegan plant-based diet rather have gained a lot of momentum in the mainstream. The misconception is that, and I've heard this, if I had a dollar for every time I heard this, I've had, I don't know, I have probably had like a thousand bucks. I've heard this a lot in the last 22 years of being vegan, is that vegans are assholes. I've heard this from so many people over the years. And it's usually under the auspices of meeting someone and then they find out that I'm vegan or that I've been a vegan chef or involved in the vegan community. And they're like, wow, you're, you're not an asshole. I thought you would be an asshole. It's like, wow, I, if, I had some, if I, again, had a dollar for every version of that I've heard. So I, I want to lead off this episode by discussing this misconception in particular because I think it, it is something that still persists to this day that a lot of random people that I will meet in conversation at parties, gatherings, being introduced to someone. It's some version of, I thought you would be an asshole. I thought you would be a zealot with some kind of you know, religious fervor trying to convert me. Or I thought that you would be you know, a really dismissive, snide, kind of smarmy person with your attitude and your beliefs. And I want to start this because I think it leaves a lot of room for us to kick this off in conversation of, why do we think that stereotype persists with such power? And what can we do to to turn that around? How can we create a more positive, open, friendly vibe around the idea of what it means to be vegan? Who wants to jump in? This also is the most guests we've ever had on an episode with Tony and Michelle and, of course, Whitney. So whoever wants to jump in on the subject. Hey, wait a second. Don't forget we had Yakim. Yakim? Oh, we did a Natasha. You're right. Yes. I am incorrect. Yes. I am a vegan asshole. I am just a vegan <laughs> asshole. Oh, we thought we were special. <laughs> See, you guys ahead. are special, but we do have... I think you guys are the second pair that we've had on the show, if I recall. But I'm also worried that I'm forgetting somebody else. I'm not sure. We're but... going to be getting all kinds of hate mail now, Whitney. All <laughs> kinds of hate mail. This is what happens when you've done a lot of podcast episodes. As Tony and Michelle can relate to, actually, on a little side note, how many episodes of your podcast have you released? Gosh, 30-something are we at now, Tony? I, I think somewhere around there. Something around In there. the 30s, maybe. <laughs> it's interesting because you guys have such a different format. Jason and I don't have seasons. We've been do- releasing three episodes a week for almost a year now. So we're up to like 130-something. But you guys have had your podcast for much longer than us. And so it's it's just so funny how time doesn't really necessarily impact how many episodes you've done. But that's this whole side note. Back to Jason's question. We bow down to you, by the way. We cannot believe three episodes per week. Oh my gosh. It's a lot. But once we got into the rhythm of it, it's just how we do things. You get used to it, you know? Yeah. And as a side note too, you know, again, if this is your first time on This Might Get Uncomfortable, dear listener, welcome to this episode. 
with Tony and Michelle. We're going to dive into a lot over the next, God knows, 90 minutes to 120 minutes, however long we ride this roller coaster. But having a great team, right, is really instrumental. And you both have had your individual brands and you have uh, some collaborations we're going to discuss over this episode. But I don't want to lose sight of the original question, which is, which is this stereotype, you know, of judgmental, pushy, asshole, zealot vegans. And in both of your work and the work you're doing together, and Whitney, for you two, like, let's all discuss this. I'm curious why you think this stereotype continues to persist with such fervor. And what can we do to dispel this? How do we dispel this myth of, you know, vegans are assholes or zealots? I'm happy to share my own experience. And I felt the most fiery passion Well, I guess it happened twice. One, when I first learned about animal suffering, which had never crossed my path before. I never considered it. And if I had, I didn't really care. I just continued living my life. But once I really learned about what was happening in the animals for food industries, I felt heartbroken and I wanted a change to happen pretty fast. And then the second time it happened, I was working directly with farmed animals at Farmed Animal Sanctuary. And I got to visit all different types of farms, family farms, factory farms. And I saw what was happening to animals at all the types of farms. And again, it brought this intensity where animals were suffering right now and I needed change to happen immediately. And so I think that that's for a lot of animal activists where that passion comes from, you know that there's immense suffering happening and you want to make the world a better place for animals. And I have changed dramatically over the past decade or more because for a few reasons, I want to maintain my relationships with my family and friends. I also realize that I'm not going to win hearts and minds by being rude or mean. We actually talked about this on our last episode. Being kind is one of the best ways to reach people. And I feel so strongly now that that is how we can spread the message of vegan living by being kind, offering delicious food, modeling what a normal person who happens to be vegan is like. And I feel really grateful to have found Michelle and have connected with her and aligned so much in how we present this information. It's interesting because, Jason, you say how to dispel the myth that vegans are zealots. And I think at some point we have to come to grips with the fact that this is no longer sadly really a myth. Sometimes when you become extremely passionate about something, we can sort of lose lose touch with being kind, even though that's how this all started. Anyone who goes vegan, there's usually an element of kindness that's very much ingrained in that choice. You want to be kind to animals, kind to the world, kind to your body. It's a decision usually rooted in kindness. But as you see a world around you moving at a very fast pace in opposite directions of kindness, it can be so hard to live in that world. And as you try, especially when you're newly stepping into a vegan or plant-based lifestyle, as you try and navigate the new things that you're learning and implement change in the ways that you're personally able to do, but also help inspire change in those around you, you encounter a lot of frustrations (laughs) that can sometimes 
lead to being not so nice, not so kind, and a little judgmental of people around you. And so I think that is something that many people who are vegan can sort of relate to at some point in their journey having felt that way. I know when I first went vegan, I was so passionate and I still am so passionate, but I didn't really know how to handle all of these issues I was learning about. Do I go to protests? Do I work at a nonprofit organization? Do I share this information and all these undercover and footage on Facebook and with everyone I know? Like, How do I handle and come to grips with what's happening in the world in a productive way? And it's taken a decade plus. Tony and I have both been vegan for more than 13 years. And over that time, my attitude and approach has changed so much as I realized that what is impactful is not really what I first thought, which is like, just spread the awareness however you possibly can. Instead, everyone is on their own journey on this planet Earth. We all have different life experiences. We all have different food journeys, whatever. And the biggest way I've seen impact happen is just, as Tony was saying, by being friendly, being kind, having conversations that are in a non-judgmental space and tone, sharing delicious food, and finding camaraderie with people who are different than myself. This also leads me to something that I think is really interesting. And you brought this up in the introduction to your book, The Friendly Vegan Cookbook, which we will link to along with anything else we mentioned today in the show notes of our show at wellevator.com, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. If you go to the podcast section of our website, you'll find a whole transcript of this episode if you want to reference anything that the girls are talking about today or Jason's talking about and any resources we mentioned, and of course, the link to their book. So in your intro, you said that choosing vegan doesn't mean self-denial. In fact, it's quite the opposite because it means a whole new world of plant-powered ingredients opening up to you. And this is something that many of us who advocate for the vegan lifestyle talk about, but I love this idea of self-denial because I think a lot of people struggle with this. I think self-denial is an just kind of an interesting thing. So first of all, I'm curious about what is your definition of self-denial? In this case to me, it means like I'm not allowing myself to have something that I want. Is that kind of how you define it in this context or in general? Yeah, I think that that's spot on. And a lot of times when people decide, hey, I'm going to go vegan, their first thought is everything they're going to have to give up and not have in their life that they were used to. And once you are a little bit into this journey and looking backwards, you realize, wow, that was a really sacrificial way to look about things, but it doesn't have to be that way. And it's kind of like, I mean, this is a really basic example, but the glass is half empty or the glass is half full, <laughs> except for in this case, that if you're going to start eating plant-based, the glass is not half empty. The glass is like overflowing. Anyone you talk to who steps into eating a plant-based lifestyle, you'll hear almost always, it's like an explosion of infinity new foods, plants, everything that they'd never, you know, cuisines, ethnic cuisines that they'd never even explored or tried before. And so there's so much out there that you get to explore when you're shifting to this way of eating. 
it's unnecessarily cruel and harmful to ourselves when we look at it as a lack or if we talk to ourselves in a way that says you can't eat this anymore. You're choosing not to eat that anymore, but look at all of the amazing things that you can eat now or that you choose to eat. <laughs> I think this gets into, you know, the psychology, the subject of self-denial or this idea of deprivation. That's a word that I hear a lot is I I'm afraid I'm going to be deprived. I'm going to be deprived of the things that I really want. And psychologically speaking, it's fascinating to me because when we think about being deprived of the things we want, it brings up emotions, emotions of lack, emotions of desire, emotions of perhaps we are in a moment where we want something comforting. And the fear of if I give this thing up that's emotionally comforting, what am I going to substitute in those moments of comfort? And you know, from a psychological perspective, I think this idea of lack or denial or deprivation is, is super key because fear or the idea that something is going to be worse than it is or something's going to be bad, I think holds people back, not just from making a switch to a vegan lifestyle. Perhaps it's people taking better care of their health or whatever changes people want to make in their life. I've just noticed for myself, this is maybe a more of a macro spiritual kind of tilt to the conversation, but that I will anticipate a situation being bad, right? Or a conversation I need to have with a loved one or making a lifestyle change or a diet change like we're discussing right now. But then so many times, I'm curious if the three of you feel this way, that it's like when you commit to something and you say, all right, you know what? I'm just going to do it. Almost every single time, not every single time, but the majority of the time for me, the reality of what I experience is nowhere close to the fear or the panic or whatever I'm imagining in my mind for it to be. Does that make sense? It's like, I had all this worry about this situation and then I finally do the thing and I'm like, oh my God, this was so much easier and so much better than I thought it would be. Why was I worried in the first place? And it kind of feels like that plays into this lifestyle change too, as people are so concerned and fearful. But I've noticed when people do it and they start to make the transition, they're like, actually, this is great. Quote, this is easier than I thought it would be. Yes. I was just going to say that when I'm working with people on plant-based on a budget, I I try to share my own experience that it doesn't have to be an all or nothing jump. And for me, it wasn't that all or nothing jump. It took me many years of gradual change to fully become a vegan, to embrace the vegan lifestyle and to know that I wanted that for my forever. And I was really graceful and kind to myself when I made mistakes on accident or on purpose. And I also encourage people to do what's best for themselves when I'm discussing plant-based eating with them. It doesn't have to be, okay, today you eat a standard American diet, tomorrow you're whole food plant-based vegan. And I think that if we can look at it as setting up ourselves for success for forever, then it really isn't about denial. It's just about embracing change. Yeah. And one of the other things that's worth thinking about is just the unsustainability of living in lack and deprivation. That's almost never sustainable. And it's why I try not to use the word plant-based diet because in essence, a diet is usually tied in your mind to lack and to holding yourself back from eating what you really want to eat. And that's not what this is about at all. It shouldn't be. And we very much advocate the opposite of approach of just abundance and exploring this world of abundance and choosing things that are aligned with 
foods you love that are aligned with your existing values of compassion and kindness, aligned with the way that you want our world to be well into the future, it is unsustainable to live in a mindset of lack for a long, long period of time or your lifestyle. It's interesting when you think about it, some people who decide they want to go vegan, think about this last meal, the final meal. I don't know if you guys have heard people talk about that before, but they're like, okay, I'm going to go vegan on this date. Oftentimes it's January 1st. And so on December 31st, I'm going to pack in all the meat, all the dairy, all the KFC, whatever that I can into this last meal. And then it's like saying goodbye and that you're going to have to resist eating those foods forever. And I very much agree with Tony. It's like, while everyone has different, can have a different approach that works best for them for evolving into a different style of eating. I too, I, I didn't exactly do it overnight. I did it over a couple weeks, but it was a gradual shift into kind of acclimating my taste buds to loving the plant-based foods. And I think that I was able to then do it in a way where I never felt the lack. I'm more, as you start to do it, you start to feel the excitement of the things you maybe thought, I probably, I don't know if I'm going to be able to eat these types of things again. And then you're like, oh my gosh, it's a vegan cheese sandwich. It's a vegan pumpkin pie. It's everything now you can find vegan. So it has, it comes with so much excitement that you'll soon find once you step in that direction. Okay. So I want to bring up, I don't know if it's going to be controversial or not, but Tony, you said something about, you know, it being a forever choice. And one thing that I've been noticing recently, kind of on the periphery, because I don't necessarily want to be involved in the drama of what I'm about to bring up, but there are people who are content creators, YouTubers, entrepreneurs, like all of us are putting out a specific kind of content with veganism, whether that be, you know, recipes and nutrition or, you know, beauty and fashion. And an interesting number and some pretty super popular ones have actually said they're no longer vegan over the past, I think probably two years, two to five years. It seems there's been a potentially increasing number of, quote, high-profile vegans or YouTubers or content creators being like, hey, everyone, not vegan anymore. And it's been interesting to observe them, you know, quote, coming out with that, but then also the reaction and the response that specific people have to them. So that just kind of jogged me, Tony, you saying that about it being a forever thing, but what if it's not a forever thing? How do we respond or how do you all respond when you see, say, a popular content creator YouTuber who's like, eh, not vegan anymore? Like, what's your initial response to that? Or how do you feel about that? I don't respond. That's their business. And I'm going to be over here doing my own thing. And I just feel like putting more negative energy in the world is not how I want to spend my time. There are so many real, really tough things happening. And if I can channel my energy into eliminating suffering elsewhere, then that's how I choose to spend my time. But I also feel like I hope to see people be kinder to others online, even when they disagree, even when they don't respect what someone has done or said. I don't think we should go low. When they go low, we go high. I really feel strongly about that. And I also feel like rather than... I read this book. It's called... Tattoos on the Heart. It's by Father Gregory Boyle, who is a Jesuit priest in Los Angeles who does work in gang member rehabilitation. And he talks about when we look at how we treat people, we see that 
if someone has done something bad and we shame them, we give them no reason to ever want to come back and be on your side or be be the person that you believe they can be. But when you instead show them kindness and compassion and give them reasons to want to continue doing what they were doing, then there is a very high chance that they will make that change again. And so I believe that. I feel like I talk to people all the time who, for whatever reason, stopped being plant-based and they traveled, they had a work potluck and everything was free and they loaded up on carne asada nachos. And now they feel like, oh man, I, well, not vegan anymore. Instead of saying, oh my God, you piece of crap person, I instead say, oh, that's okay. You could just choose plant-based tomorrow or give them some reason to want to continue being a friend to them, being friendly, being kind, compassionate. And I feel like that'll go further than shaming. Yeah, I can't agree more. And I, I also think it it's not just about veganism. I mean, this is this is something that's an issue on so many topics. And I think the older I get and the more I learn not to take things personally and step back and maybe question like, why is somebody saying something? What have they been taught in their life? And I think that's like one of the best benefits to a book like yours and to the work that each of you are doing on your social media platforms is it does come across friendly and it's setting that example and perhaps opening up some eyes to people that realize that as Jason was saying before like you don't have to be an asshole vegan you don't have to be angry all the time resentful you could actually be really compassionate to other people and patient and loving and understanding and i think this could actually have a ripple effect across your entire relationship with somebody if you're willing to accept somebody for who they are and where they're at right now and forgive them if they're asking for forgiveness for mistakes or or just be there for them. I think one of the most valuable things that we can do for people is to simply listen to them. We don't need to give them feedback and advice and share our opinions all the time. And I think like if somebody comes to you and says, oh, I ate this non-vegan thing at a potluck, you know, to your point, Tony, you don't need to really even say anything. Maybe they just feel better telling you that for whatever reason and maybe waiting for them to ask you for advice or something if that's actually what they're looking for. And then taking that approach of, hey, like, it's okay. And if you'd like, you can continue plant-based tomorrow, you can start over again, or you could just, you know, think of it as hitting the pause button. And to me, that approach to friendships or any relationship, because of course, this could be with any loved one in your life, family members, romantic partners, children, having that understanding response to somebody, I think is such a great gift. I think this is such a good question that is incredibly important to dive a little bit deeper into because especially right now, we're in a politically heated time. We're in a world heated time. We're in a pandemic. People are falling on one side or the other of all all different sides of the equation. And a lot of times when you feel like you don't know what to do about something, you just feel like, I just need to speak up. 
And so if you see someone doing something you disagree with or that feels harmful, instead of looking at what you can do personally, many people are choosing right now to exercise their voice online in criticizing others and feeling like that is their form of activism. And I imagine for those listening, and it's something to feel shameful about because the the underlying sentiment is good. You're trying to do something good and remind someone that they're maybe acting in a way that's not aligned with the benefit of our world. But I would encourage you to think about how damaging that can be for anyone looking in. And looking in the vegan space, that's a a really clear example of that. If you look at a celebrity who went vegan and was vegan for many years and then at one point decides not to be anymore. And then the internet, which is what happens, blows up at them, calls them terrible, a terrible person. I can't believe you would do this. Blah, blah, blah. The people looking in who are not vegan and maybe have been looking up to this person or, or whatever, or just looking in, are seeing this onslaught of hate coming to someone because they ended up going in a different direction than the direction they were going. And how scary would that be if I was someone considering, maybe I kind of want to try this vegan thing. But then I saw what happened when someone went vegan and then went backwards. It's not only like the pressure on yourself to, oh, I don't know if I I can actually stick with this or if I will want to and will will I feel bad going then back. But the whole world is now putting pressure on. If you become someone who takes a step in this direction and then steps back, then you're getting gut judgment from the world and the internet publicly. It's just such, it it makes it such a scary word to embrace personally, especially if you're new and not to the point where, Tony, I know you feel you want to be vegan forever. But if you're not to that point and you're just trying to just explore, see how this feels with your body and your mental state, that's a scary place to step into. And so I think that's so damaging. It makes it almost kind of, it makes me shy away from the word even because I don't want someone who wants to take a step in a positive direction towards choosing kind food choices to feel that pressure and to potentially, if they slip up or accidentally eat something not vegan or choose to eat something not vegan, then it could cause them trauma. I would hate that. I don't wish that upon anybody. And so I hope that we can just all come back to be kind. You never know what someone's going through. You never know the the whole full story of someone's choices. And ultimately, we're all entitled to make our own choices. And whether that's aligned with what I believe is right and what you believe is right, someone, each person has autonomy over their own body and what they put in it. So the best thing that we can do is just lead by positive example, truly. I think that's such a good point, Michelle. And it I'm glad that you brought up the political side of it too, because I was just thinking the other day how I feel uncomfortable talking about who I support in the election, you know, who I plan to vote for, because it just feels like scary territory when you kind of reveal (laughs) what you're doing and what you believe in because of the state of the internet. And we've talked about this with Tony, actually, when we did our episode with her back in. August of this year, which we'll link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. Again, that's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And in the show notes, you'll find links to everything that we've referenced. And that way, you don't have to scramble around or try to remember anything that we're saying right now. And one of the big parts of that episode we did with you, Tony, that, that affected other people and impacted them is talking about kindness and and how there can be so much cruelty online. 
And we also talked about this a bit when we were discussing the documentary, The Social Dilemma. And we've talked about that in a few episodes recently and just how the internet can feel like a really scary place. It can feel vulnerable. It can feel confusing. It can feel unsafe. And, you know, we've known for many years that trolls or angry people feel like they can hide behind their keyboards and say whatever they want. But that doesn't mean that it's easy. And it is tricky. And of course, these conversations can be challenging in person as well. And and similar to politics, you know, there's often this rule when you go to a social gathering, like just don't discuss politics. But then it becomes really tricky because what if you're really passionate about these things and you feel like it's important to discuss and you want to have a compassionate discussion with somebody without being judgmental. I think the same thing can happen with being vegan. And I'm curious for the three of you, I'm sure at some point you have perhaps considered just not saying that you're vegan simply so that you don't have to get into those heated discussions. (laughs) Maybe I'm wrong. So if any of you have never been in that place like me, I actually try not to bring it up that much because I don't like getting into those confrontations. That feels very emotionally unsafe for me. But I'm curious, like, has that changed for you over the years? Jason, I don't even know if you've talked about this much aside from not wanting to lead with your veganism in terms of your career per se. But personally, I'm I'm really interested in this and how you navigate some of these social situations online and offline. Okay, so it's been brought up a couple of times that I said vegan forever. And yes, that is so true for me. But I would like to clarify that I do not believe in perfection. I believe in messing up a lot. Or I just believe that life is a bunch of like a series of mess ups. And I feel that about how I eat. There are times where I'm way too comfortable and I think everything is vegan and I'll eat something and not check the ingredients and I don't beat myself up for those types of things. So while I do while I do consider myself in it for the the long haul, I do not believe in perfection. I have picked cheese off of my food if the server brought something out with cheese on it. I'm not a perfectionist at all. So I want to clarify that because I, I feel like that's important. And then to answer your question, Whitney, I am in a world of non-vegans. Most of my close friends, almost actually all of my closest friends, minus Michelle and my husband, they eat everything or are vegetarians. And my family, they are not vegetarians. Um, and so I'm surrounded by non-vegetarians and I'm a swing dancer. When we're not in a pandemic, I love swing dancing. And I meet all kinds of different people. And it is not something that I bring up front. It does come up because it's my job. I have a a website called Plant Based on a Budget. So it's a giveaway. But I try to be just a regular, friendly person who shares something in common with another friendly person. And when it's time to get to know each other a little bit deeper that's when it comes up. But by that time, we've already, especially swing dancing, we've already shared a physical connection. We've danced together. We've pulled off to the side to start chatting. And we've built this rapport and mutual respect that when it comes up, it's not... I believe the defensive shield that could have come up is already down from 
the person I'm talking to because they realize that I'm a, a nice, friendly, safe person to talk to. I think it's, it's there's like a comic out there that I forget how exactly it goes, but it's like that you're a vegan. You know, you you automatically know who all the vegans are at the party because it's like the first thing they say. Hey, I'm Michelle. I'm a vegan. <laughs> they announce themselves, probably wearing a vegan sweatshirt, vegan hoodie, vegan pin, bumper stickers on their car. And I can kind of relate to that because I definitely uh, was wearing rocking a vegan sweatshirt this morning. <laughs> I have a sticker on my car, but I have evolved so much over the 13 years where now I realize that being that person where that's the first thing that comes out of your mouth as a significant part of your identity makes it less accessible for the person that you're talking about, that you're talking to. And the approach of just be yourself first, who happens to be vegan, can work wonders. My husband, who has also been vegan for more than 10, 10 years, often says, yeah, I'm vegan, but I hate vegans. <laughs> so he falls into that boat who thinks vegans are kind of assholes. Sorry. It's because if you're someone who all you're doing is talking about being vegan and casting judgments or whatever, that's not, no one wants to hang around that. So I've shifted my behavior in that a lot. And I've just realized that I'm Michelle. I have a lot of things about me and I happen to be vegan because I, I'm trying to make choices that are kind and aligned with health, the environment, the world, animals. But the word vegan isn't what defines me. That's just a tool to help describe trying to be a person who's kind. And so, yeah, I think I'm curious, Jason, to hear your perspective of do you say you're vegan right away at parties and thoughts about that and how that's evolved over the years, too, because it is, it is interesting. It seems like when people first go vegan, that's the first part of identity that really is attached strong and it sort of can take a more chilled out, friendly <laughs> approach over time. Yeah. First of all, I just had to laugh because when you said your husband is like, I'm vegan, but I hate vegans. <laughs> I just had to laugh, but not because I hate vegans, but because, yeah, I have begun to, what is the correct word? Not disidentify, because that's not true. I don't lead with it anymore. And I don't lead with it anymore because I, I started to see that over the years, there were, there were really interesting benefits that leading with that allowed me to connect with people. But then there was always the other side of the coin or the other, you know, the other side of the blade, if you will. And I think especially as social media has been growing out of this Wild West infancy period, there's a lot of people I know, and I did this too, when I was, say, growing my Twitter following or growing my Instagram following, I would, in the early days especially, just look for people who had, you know, hashtag vegan in their profile as a strategy, right? I would just start following people. Boom, 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 boom. Anybody who's vegan, right? Just boom, I'm going to follow everybody. And I would say probably a good 80% plus back in the day would follow me back. That's one way that I started to initially grow my following. But the the other side of the coin, I think for me I noticed when I was leading with that is when I would get introduced to people, uh, you know, through a friend, you're at a party or a networking event, whatever the case may be, some gathering. They're like, oh, this is my friend Jason. Yeah, you know, he's a vegan chef and he had a, a show on Cooking Channel and Food Network Canada and he's got this book out and he did this and he chefed for this person. Blah, and that's all they had to say, right? And then the majority of the time, the, the conversation with the new person or the group of new people, that would be all they wanted to talk about. And to be honest, after years of this, I started to feel resentful 
And I started to feel a resentment of my own creation that the resentment was self-directed, right? Because I was branding myself and leading with that and had it on every single one of my bios on every single social platform and obviously created a brand with all of it that no one ever wanted to really talk to me about my music career or my singing, or they didn't really want to talk to me about, you know, my my obsession with cars and motorcycles or the fact that I love basketball or how obsessed I am with the color orange and what that means to me or my meditation practice or my yoga practice or my spirituality. No one really ever wanted to talk about any of that because it was so clouded or overshrouded by, oh, he's vegan. That must be his whole life. I have to take responsibility for leading so powerfully with that for so long. But the reason that I'm pulling back from that and the reason you don't really even see the word vegan on any of my social profiles now is because I want to have different conversations. I, I still am very much vegan. It is part of my ethical core, my ethical compass as a person because of the reasons for animal rights and environmental protection and human health and all of the reasons. And, you know, People say like vegan for all the reasons. But for me, I want to open up myself to different avenues of creative expression and allowing people to want to have conversations with me about all those other subjects and ones that I can't even anticipate instead of you know, you sit down with a new person and the whole whatever conversation, however long it is, is like, oh, what about this recipe? Do you have a recipe for this? Do you have a recipe? And that's great, right? Because then you get an opportunity to educate and inspire. But I found that it was always about that. And I'm like, I don't want to talk about food all the time, guys. Like it's getting old. So the long answer is I'm not leading with that anymore. And I'm finding I feel freer actually to express myself and talk about different subjects. And that feels better to my soul, honestly. This also brings up something for me that each of us have experienced in one way or another, which is just the evolution of veganism over the time that each of us have chosen this lifestyle. For me, that was in 2003. For Jason, was that 2000 that you went vegan or earlier? 90s? May of 1998. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's funny, actually. I, I went vegetarian in May 2003 and then vegan sometime in the fall of 2003. And Tony and Michelle, I'm curious about when that transition was for you, but but more so just all the changes that we've seen happen. And this conversation can be a little cliche. I'm actually more, because I mean, vegans <laughs> love to talk about how much veganism has evolved, right? Like in the past 10 years, we've seen things shift by leaps and bounds, right? So I'm not really that interested in discussing like the changes in food. But it's really the changes in attitude. One thing that I think each of us have noticed a lot is our careers as vegan content creators and how, at least when I started Eco Vegan Gal in 2008, like being vegan was like part of what made me unique in a way. Like it felt like the community online was so small. And Michelle and Jason, part of how I met each of you was through the fact that we were vegan content creators, you know, like Jason, I think I, it might have also for both you and because I met Tony through Michelle, but for both Michelle and Jason, I think YouTube kind of brought us together. And I remember back then, and then meaning like 2011 or 12 for me, I was like one of the only vegan YouTubers that I knew of, you know, like I was in like the top 10 or 20 vegan YouTube channels for a long time. 
And then all of a sudden, like a few years after that, probably in like 2014 or 15, there were so many vegan YouTube channels. And suddenly I was like, no longer as relevant. And same thing with blogs and Instagram accounts. And there was this whole wave, which was simultaneously exciting. But then suddenly I felt like, who was I? You know, coming back to this concept of veganism being your identity, I'm like, oh, if being a vegan content creator is no longer unique or special in the way that it used to be, how do I kind of navigate this world of content creation? And I'm really curious how that's affected, if that's affected you, Michelle, and, and you as well, Tony, because I got to know you more recently than Jason and Michelle. I can definitely relate to that. <laughs> I think, Whitney, we started our YouTube channels around the same time. And at the time I was in college, I had just recently gone vegan and there was not information out there. I didn't know. It was a challenge and there wasn't a lot of resources out there. And so I started my YouTube channel in order to be a friend to people and a resource to people, a, an actual face that someone could connect with. So if they go vegan in Texas or I was in Ohio at the time, wherever, they didn't feel alone. And I felt very needed. And that made it feel very rewarding to create content because I would always get messages. Oh my God, thank you. I don't know any other vegans. Thank you for sharing this really simple, terrible recipe because there's nothing else out there. You know, like at the time it was just, I was feeling such a need that I saw. And it's a lot different today where there's infinity content creators, there's a zillion blogs, even cookbooks. There's so many cookbooks out there that seem to cover almost every possible vegan topic that you can imagine. But so it has shifted where it's like now if someone wants to go vegan or plant based, they have no excuses that there's not information out there. Like the resources are there. If I get hit by a bus today, like people can still figure out how to go vegan, <laughs> which it is both comforting and just brings up, well, how can I best utilize myself and my creative strengths to be able to help people and help the world? And what I have found in over time is that while there is a lot out there, just people resonate with really different different things, different people, different content creators. I look through my own YouTube feeds and I think it is flooded with content, but I don't want to watch most of it. And there's a couple people who I really do want to watch and I wish they'd create more. Like Whitney, I'm always like, ah, when's <laughs> I know you don't create a lot on YouTube anymore, but if it was there, I would love watching it because I just I really resonate with the way that you share content and your voice and that and your thoughtfulness around issues. And so I think it's important for any for all of you and for anyone listening who who cre creates in any way is not to push aside your want to create things because you feel like it's already been done or someone else is doing it. Even if you're doing something really similar to what's already out there, it's you, it's your voice, it's your perspective, it's your path, life, way you've walked through all of life that's going to resonate with different people than what the other person's doing over there. So, and it's really cool that now there's so many platforms and anyone who has phone or anything has the ability to engage and to be creating and using, exercising their voice, which is also helpful in those who are, are using, are choosing the form of activism of commenting on other people and what they're doing wrong. Instead, I'd encourage you to take the tools that are available to you right in your hand, probably 
right now (laughs) if you're holding your phone and find your voice and find what you care about. Think about how you can inspire rather than tearing down and use it because goodness knows the world can use like all of our special, happy, inspiring, friendly gifts that we can share. I remember when I was starting a blog and I'm way past when you all did yours. I started mine in 2000, early 2012. I remember people were like, well, there are a lot of vegan blogs out there. How are you going to be special? And I pretty much all along the way, when I started doing this work full time, I remember my parents were like, that's not a job. Like You're taking steps backward or backwards in life. And I, I've just met resistance the whole way. And I've had a couple people cheering for me in my corner. Uh, but it's so easy to let others and even yourself talk you out of something there are too many people, I don't have the right equipment, but just moving forward and believing in yourself and believing that you have something unique, even if it's just your weekly meals, that is unique. And I don't believe that it's a too crowded space. I I still believe that there's room for more for other people. And actually, I have to give a shout out to you, Whitney, because I know I was in a little bit of a crossroads where I was let go from work. And I was thinking about moving back into working for just a company as not a cog in a machine, but that's how I saw myself. Just where can someone else use what my skills to help, you know, create a kinder world? And Whitney, at that exact moment, you had been one of the people to encourage me to at least try doing my own thing and creating what I wanted to create for myself. And if you can find it within yourself to give yourself that courage, that's great. But even if you are very strong-willed and know you want something, it can be hard to do it completely alone. And so finding someone who will be in your corner, and that can even be any of us. I'm sure if you reach out on social media to any of us, we can help be that for you maybe. But having someone to encourage you is everything. And I just have to say thank you, Whitney, because had you not I think we met up at Timeless one day when I was trying to decide what to do with my life. And had we not, World of Vegan may not exist. The Plant Powered People podcast that Tony and I run may not exist. The Friendly Vegan Cookbook that we wrote definitely wouldn't exist. Like the Draw My Life videos I've made that have reached millions of people and inspired so many people to go vegan, like wouldn't exist. All of these things wouldn't exist because I didn't have the strong enough belief in myself. And so other people lifted me up in that moment. And I'm so grateful. Yes. And also shout out to Whitney for making Michelle or helping Michelle make that decision. And Michelle then encouraging me when I was in a very similar position and had lost my job, encouraging me when pretty much all of my other friends who had a conventional job and benefits and knew my financial situation and how it couldn't support, it could not really support me long term trying something new out. Michelle was the person, Michelle and my husband were the people who were like, you got to try this. We believe in you. You can do it. And so if Whitney hadn't encouraged Michelle, then Michelle wouldn't have encouraged me. And I'm so grateful to be in the position I'm in now. So thank you both. Well, I'm humbled to hear that. And I think it's actually an important thing as part of this conversation, because the other side of our work is the dangers of getting caught up in our metrics, whether that's 
how many followers we have, how many likes or views we get on our content, how old we are, what our gender is, how much money we make, all of these different things that we kind of use to measure ourselves and compare ourselves and determine sometimes even our self-worth. I think it's really important to hear feedback like that, not just for me, but I think everybody should be hearing something like that, how it doesn't, you don't have to reach the masses. You could actually create this whole ripple effect simply by helping one person. And I think that is, is really a message that needs to be discussed more frequently, especially since we're in this world that places so much emphasis on numbers that you're making a difference just on your own. You know, one of the elements of veganism is that it's helping animals, it's helping the earth, and it's helping you. And some people feel so helpless. But if you can do that change for yourself, not only does that make an impact based on your life, but you might be inspiring a few other people. And then those people might go on to inspire others. And it's like this pay it forward type of thing. And I think that we need to recognize that more frequently. Myself, especially, because I've certainly been, I felt a lot of pressure and disappointment based on metrics. And that's kind of haunted me for many years now. And I think about that a lot. And we talk about that on the show sometimes, but I wonder how many other people are struggling with this idea of not feeling enough because they don't feel like they're doing enough or getting the results that they want. And then maybe if if just they were acknowledged, just like you acknowledged me, if we acknowledged each other, this is another part of being kind, right? Especially if, if you're really into words of affirmation like I am, that's one of my love languages. Just simply acknowledging other people can make such a huge difference in boosting somebody's feelings of self-worth, their self-esteem, and encouraging them to keep going, you know, because if you get caught up in all of this mentality of, oh, well, I don't make enough money or I don't have enough followers, this photo didn't get enough likes or I'm too old for this or whatever else you're thinking that's based on some some number that we've used to as a metric for success. I think if you get caught up in that, it can be incredibly dangerous for your mental health. And that simple act of hearing from somebody that you've helped them might end up being a good way to diffuse any of those negative feelings that you're having. I a million percent agree. And I'm grateful that we had the opportunity to express this now, but it is so fascinating to think about how 99.999% of the time that you're going to impact someone even completely change their life, the course of their life. And then the ripple effect that has on everyone else, like Whitney, you did for both Tony and I, most often you never hear about that. I'll hear sometimes from people who write in, actually, I recently hired someone, her name's Gina House. And she now works with me on World of Vegan. And at one point, she had messaged me when I was having a baby and was like, I'd love to send you a gift as just a thank you for inspiring me to go vegan through your YouTube channel all these years ago. And I was like, wow, I had no idea I had that impact on you. And it was like something that just happened to have her reach out about that. But most of the time, you never hear that. You never know who you're impacting. And for those who are doing positive 
and friendly work, for the vast majority, the impact that you're having on the world around you that you'll never know about is very, very positive. It is important to also think about when we are being negative or hurtful to other people, that can also have a ripple effect that you also never hear about. And you never know what downward spiral you can cause someone to go into. So just being conscious of everything that we do that touches someone else impacts them. That becomes a part of their life story. And we we can't control how that's internalized and what that leads. But we can control how we act, how we engage with people, the words we say to people, the things that we share online. And by just sharing positive, inspiring things that can lead to a positive direction is always going to have a positive impact on the world. I think one subset of this, I don't know why it came to me, maybe out of this idea of the means in which we present ourselves to reach people and us talking about the idea of impact right now, which is not treating our creative endeavors as if they exist in a vacuum, that anything that we're putting out into the world is going to have an energetic ripple effect. And one thing that I think is still controversial, very, very much controversial, and since we're talking about specifically our work in veganism as activists and content creators and entrepreneurs, is the use of uh, sexuality to promote veganism. And you know, I remember back in the 90s when I was first transitioning from a standard American diet to vegetarian and then vegan, the ads back then with, you know, from PETA with Pamela Anderson and some other celebrities who were, um, that's been a campaign that's been going on a while of, of kind of leveraging female and to a lesser degree, male sexuality to promote veganism. And the three of you and myself included, we haven't in our brands or our content gone to that, I guess, type of content or strategy to get eyeballs and followers. You know, I've talked to acquaintances and colleagues of ours that that you may or may not know, we may all know, um, who have chosen to do that. And they did so because they felt so much pressure that they saw other people getting so many followers and comments and their again, their vanity metrics going up that deciding to wear less clothing or wear a certain kind of clothing or none at all or leverage their sexuality to get more attention on veganism has been a strategy people have employed. So I don't know if I have a specific question other than have any of you all ever considered that, been like, ah, if I only whatever wore a crop top or showed my belly or whatever, then I'd get more followers or has it never even been a consideration? And ethically or morally, how do you feel about that as a strategy or a tool to grow the attention toward veganism? I mean, I, similar to what Tony said before, it's like, I'm cool with whatever people want to do if it's not hurting anyone. You know, it's like, well, if that works for you, if that reaches some people, if you're comfortable using your body in that way, then that's fine, you know, because I'm really all for freedom of expression. But I suppose this idea of hurting somebody is really complex because one idea is that maybe it helps the animals, helps the environment. Great. But what if it hurts somebody's self-esteem? What if they see a woman with a flat stomach or enlarged breasts or a really great butt or whatever else it is about her that you're noticing and she's putting this on display? I mean, for me, I often feel triggered by that because then I start to feel inadequate, right? And I imagine the same goes for men too. You know, there's so many factors and features of a man's body that other men I'm sure see and then think, oh gosh, I wish I looked like that. And since I don't look like that, maybe I'm not as desirable. 
And I think that's a tricky thing when it comes to putting yourself out there. But on the other hand, if we are constantly censoring ourselves, then that's also detrimental too. So it's a tricky thing. And for me, I've just had to take that responsibility of working on my reactions to those things and not judging other people, but just noticing like, hey, what is it about this image or this video or whatever it is that's triggering an emotion? And what's the root of that emotion? It really has nothing to do with the person that's doing those things, right? So I have seen some, you know, or some advertisements like PETA, for example, has used celebrities to pose and be very sexual and whatever. And and actually, part of me feels like it's cool because it these people are beautiful and we put so much value on people's appearance already. We might as well use it for something that's spreading a, a message that I agree with. It makes me feel sad to know that the people Jason mentioned feel pressured into something. If that's the case, then that just makes me feel sad. If it's the way someone really loves to express themselves, then power to you. But It's the pressure part that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I know that that is an easy thing to happen when you spend a large part of your day online. I have never felt compelled to show myself. If you look at the plant-based on a budget feed, I'm hardly... Unless it's my book cover, which I actually... I do not want to be on the cover. I very rarely make appearances in the feed. But... I know that that is how some people build a brand with their personality and making people feel connected to them. And I choose to do it through food. But to answer your question, I don't personally feel any need and I have not felt any need to show more skin than I do. And I think that mostly my personality, I'm pretty introverted and reserved and a little bit conservative about how I show my body. And so that it's just in line with my personality. I feel really divided on this because on the one hand, I feel like everyone should feel empowered to use their body, their own personal body, however they want. That's their choice. But I also, it breaks my heart that the young kids in the world are growing up looking at examples of people who are paying massive amounts of money to change their appearance and setting completely unrealistic just norms for the way that people look. It just it breaks my heart. And especially having a child now, I have an eight-month-old, and knowing that he's going to grow up in a world where such emphasis is put on what you look like, a world where he's going to be seeing more filtered faces than unfiltered faces, (laughs) at least right now during the pandemic, it is just, it scares me a lot to think of how damaging that is going to be on young people growing up and already is on young people growing up. And I feel it myself. I mean, I tend to, I try to not care about appearance. And it's one of the things that Whitney, I've just so appreciated your content for so many years before people were even talking about this. You would just be like, I want to be real, authentic, unfiltered. I don't care if my room's messy or whatever. I'm showing you the real me. And it was at a time where that wasn't happening. Like on YouTube, everyone was creating a set to film in. And as a (laughs) semi-perfectionist, I do struggle with trying to like wanting to present an example of being real and unfiltered and setting examples of you don't need to 
look any sort of way. And we certainly shouldn't feel like before we answer our phone call on video, we need to first go do our hair. Like, it's just crazy. But that's like sort of the world that we've gotten to live in today. So I just, I guess I will say, I don't want to cast judgment on anyone, but I feel incredibly grateful, inspired, empowered by people who are taking off the filters, who are showing up in their pajamas with their messy hair with no makeup and just being themselves and showing a little glimpse to all of the people watching that it is okay to be a real person in the world. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like I'm getting pretty worked up about this because I think it's just, it's so important and also just completely breaks my heart that this is the world that we're in now. I get worked up about it too. And I mean, going in a different direction than Jason, I think that you were asking more about like advocating for veganism as well as building your following. I think what the, what else breaks my heart, Michelle, to, to piggyback off what you're saying is seeing the influx, the rise, as I was saying earlier, the rise of influencers and how for those of us who started long ago, like we've seen this industry change so much. Like Tony was saying how it, oftentimes you're, or even you, Michelle, you were talking about how you were making your videos just like to be helpful. Back in the day when we started, which for me was in uh, 2008, it really was like something fun to do. And then like I started to connect with people and that was rewarding. And similar to what you've both said and Jason has expressed before, it feels really good when someone says, oh, you changed my life or I watched your videos and they were really helpful. And you know that gratitude was so rewarding. And then as Michelle also talked about, we started to see how we can make careers out of this. And and Jason, you kind of like went out the gate with this as your career because you were doing so much work as a chef at that time. And then it's like the influencer world built up and it was a big compliment. And for me, Michelle, and it sounds like Tony, you as well, discovering like, oh, we can make money from this. You know, like I remember when I was starting out and how just getting ads on my blog felt like such a big undertaking in 2009 and 2010. And then you could like monetize your YouTube videos. And I remember getting my first check from YouTube and thinking, this is so cool. And then you get kind of addicted to that world of like, well, how do I optimize this more? How do I get more followers? How do I get more views? And then that combined with the pressure to look and act a certain way Basically, we're connecting that with success. And I think this is true in many industries. You know, I think one of the gifts, if there is one, of the pandemic and COVID is people having this permission to work from home where many industries weren't allowing that. Now that's the norm. And it's that's a huge pivot, you know, because I've been advocating for working for yourself and from home for 10 years now. And it's like to see that shifting so much. And we don't even know what's going to happen. How many businesses are going to be fully remote in the United States now? I mean, I'm sure that's going to have a massive effect on us. And and so now it might be a little bit more socially acceptable to dress in yoga pants or to you know your workout clothes, your pajamas, whatever it may be. Versus you know when I look at my mom and how she used to dress to go to work, and many people still do. They dressing in suits. They they have their special work clothes that they have to wear and their hair and their makeup. There's been pressure to look a certain way and present yourself and this idea of if you are professional, you have to look this way. 
And in this world of social media, there is almost like a formula or a f- different versions of this formula in terms of like, if you do this, then you'll get that. And t- to Michelle, you alluded to how for many years, I haven't felt comfortable with that. But I feel even more uncomfortable watching other people seemingly give up their autonomy, their unique voices, as we've been talking about too. They're they're trading that for the numbers. They're saying, okay, well, I don't know if I'll be accepted as I really am. So I'm going to put on this filter. I'm going to wear this makeup. I'm going to do my hair. I'm going to buy these clothes. I'm going to edit my photos. I'm going to create the set behind me. I'm going to do all of these things to fake myself into a place of success. And one thing I often think about and just bringing this up really breaks my heart is that we don't know the ripple effect of that yet. Based on being a content creator for 12 years, I would say only half of this time, so about five or six years, has the word influencer been around. And that career path is so relatively new. We don't know the mental health consequences of this world that each of us are in. And this obsession with metrics, obsession with appearance and faking ourselves, let alone we're seeing the rise of AI and all this technology. Like, At what point do we stop that fake element of ourselves? You know, that documentary, The Social Dilemma, kind of touches upon this too. So much data is being collected on us that we're really slowly being moved into that world of faking everything in order to get some sort of temporary reward. But what happens after we get that reward? And then how much of that reward is really fulfilling? And what happens to the rest of our lives? What happens when we get older and (laughs) no longer want to be influencers, but we've based so much of our self-worth and identity on like some fake persona? How do you even break free of that? is something I've been exploring a lot because I just don't want to participate in the way that I have all these years. But it's kind of like the golden handcuffs because you're constantly rewarded for things that might not really resonate with you deep down. You've said so much uh, that it's bringing up a lot within me. And there are a few things. The truth is, if you want to be in this business, which I do believe it is, it's a business I run plant-based on a budget as though it is a business. And I feel like to be successful, you kind of have to think about it more than being an influencer, more than being a blogger, but being a business owner. And unfortunately, you have to consider numbers. You have to consider how you interact with the algorithm. And I also believe that we have control over how much we want to participate and how, if at all, we talked a little bit about this in our our last episode, Whitney, the August one, about how you've gone and looked for different ways to not depend on the algorithm, not to depend on numbers and to do consulting instead and to still be part of this space, but in a different way. And I feel like we all have that choice. And if I watch The Social Dilemma, I was moved by it. I no longer scroll on Facebook. I was getting really upset all the time. It was really harming my mood and my personal life. So to avoid that, I no longer scroll. I don't read anyone's stuff. If I have something to post for work, I post and I leave. And it has improved my mental health. I do believe we all have choices. But 
I also feel like the thing you were saying about looking a certain way, I remember when I went to pitch my first book. I went to New York and I met with seven publishing houses. Some of them were top five. And I dressed in what I thought was professional. And at the time, I had no money. I was, I just had no money. And I couldn't afford to go buy new clothes. I couldn't afford to be looking in the way that I thought I should look. And so I wore this dress that I believed was professional. It was, it was a nice dress. And it was one that you'd wear to your office job, like a form-fitting, high-neck, three-quarter sleeves to your knees. And it was cold in New York, so I wore some tights and some heels and a jacket that did not match, but that's just a jacket that I had. So I went into this publishing house, and I remember being looked at. And they wanted someone who had this certain look. And I believe I could have that look, but I didn't that day. And immediately afterward, my agent told me, they're not going to go with you. I can just tell. And I realized that the look is incredibly important. And if you want to be successful, you have to... Or I'm sorry, maybe not successful, but if you want to fit into a certain space, there's a look, there's a personality, and I don't have that. And so it did cause me to reflect on what I wanted for myself. And I didn't get an offer from them. And in, in fact, I didn't get an offer from anybody except the publisher I'm currently with and that Michelle and I are putting out our book with. They're called Bella Books. And I, at the time, felt so much sadness. I remember that first, that day I got the call. It was the bidding day where publishers bid on your book. And I was so sad. I kept thinking about how I should have dressed better, how I should have worn my hair differently. And I got my Ben Bella offer, which was a nice offer, but still I wanted more. And in retrospect, I'm really glad. I'm grateful for how it's how it has all happened. But I know I'm kind of just like blah all over the place. I believe that sometimes the look does matter. And I've embraced not having that look. I don't have that look. I don't have that personality. And that's okay with me. But I can understand how some people feel the pressure and feel the need to conform because that's what will get you a book deal. That's what will get you so far in different spaces, especially with brand ambassadorships and things like that. I feel a little bit differently. I feel like a lot of what that gets you is superficial anyway. Tony, you got an amazing book deal with a publisher that ended up being like the best, best, best for you. And I'm so grateful we're working with them now. But I think that paying attention to the numbers and paying attention to conforming to a standard may get you some forms of success. Like, what is the definition of success? Is it the numbers? Then sure, you maybe hit that. Is it getting with a certain publisher? Sure, maybe. But if your definition of success, like it is for me, is making a positive impact on the world or reaching people or being a positive inspiration that's going to help people rather than hurting them, then had you conformed yourself to those standards of how you present yourself, I think you could have been doing the opposite. So if you define success as, I think it really comes down to what you define success as. And the problem is a lot of people are defining success by the numbers and by these other sort of superficial things rather than 
Can you make someone's day better? Can you help someone live longer? Can you <laughs> prevent suffering and help make this world kinder? And you don't need to look or in any certain way, you don't need to get any sort of types of numbers or likes on a post in order to do that. Every single person has the ability to do that, to make someone's day better, to share a delicious meal, to just spread positivity. And so I just I encourage, my hope is that people can start looking at success differently and have it be less about the metrics and more about true impact on the world. Because that is where at the end of the day, when we're all like at the end, if we're so fortunate to have the opportunity to look back on our lives, it's not about how many likes we got on Instagram as someone was scrolling and probably like just liking to hope that you see them to like them back or something. (laughs) It's about those conversations that people have had and those messages of people who have listened to this podcast and you inspired them or empowered them to be more themselves, like that's what matters at the end of the day. See, I don't agree with you there. I think that that's really nice and it's a very sweet sentiment, but what pays the bills at the end of the day is higher numbers and book deals and things like that. If you want to reach more people, you have to have more money. And I started with nothing and have built a strong business. And I think that I do have a business mind. And so when I think about these things, it does come from my vision and my goals for for the future and the future of plant-based on a budget and the people I hope to reach at some point. And, And so I love making people smile. If that is something that happens, that's fantastic. But I also want to have a team who is paid comfortably, paid well, and who is happy with their job. And that means I have to bring in X amount of money and do all of these things, which, you know, working a job isn't always super fun. So I don't know. I disagree that it's not the point of it. And the point is to make people happy, which I I hope to do. I just think that while you're making people happy, that there are sometimes things that you don't have to do and that is life. Yeah, I agree with that. I will say from my personal experience, it has been very fascinating. The things that I've created over the past 13 years where I had zero expectations for, like Tony and I one time were like, let's create these nice meal plans. And I remember driving to Cambria to create them in the car with my mom who's driving us. And she was like, so girls, we were sitting in the backseat. So girls, how many people do you, you hope this to reach? How much money do you want to make from it? And I was like, uh, I literally haven't thought about numbers. If five people get this meal plan and it helps them healthier on a budget, I will be so fulfilled. Like that will make my day. It's ended up reaching thousands of people and being like my most successful endeavors ever. And it started of just like, how can I help people? And with no expectations of how it will perform, And again and again, I've seen efforts like that of mine. And those have been the most impactful things that I've done that have ended up paying the bills, but they never intended them to be that. And then on the flip side, I've also done initiatives where like I created a course where I spent a year trying to perfect the whole, like create this whole thing that I thought this is what's going to pay the bills. And it didn't. And when you put so much effort and energy into creating something for the purpose of paying the bills and it being successful, when it doesn't, that it is extremely deflating. And so when you're creating things for the purpose of just creating them because you think they should exist in the world, even if they don't do well, you're okay and you can just move on to the next project. But yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm in a very fortunate position and to have been, I think, really lucky several times 
But I do think there's not one of us is right and one of us is wrong. There is a balance in all of it. And finding a way to make it not all about the numbers, while you might have to look at that, and I know you do that very well, Tony, it is not all about the numbers for you. It's about helping people. And so finding, I don't know, finding a way to balance it all so that things can be fulfilling and not have you look at the end of your life and think, okay, I took my clothes off, I put it on the internet, and now I have a million followers and I'm getting all the likes and I'm the definition of success. I just can't imagine that feels good at the end of the day. Also, Michelle, I would like to say that although you may have some luck, you have worked really hard, even on the projects that you didn't work for one whole year. You worked hard on them and put in a lot of care And so I think it's more than luck. Oh, yeah. I mean, man, I don't know anyone who works harder than me. I will say that. But it's out of like, I just, uh, I don't know. I love it. I love creating for the sense of creating. And I think it is, it's just, I guess I'll just say it's unfortunate that we're in a position today where the, the creative minds now are tied and... (laughs) like Whitney, like you said, the golden handcuffs, like in order to pay the bills and achieve optimal success and what however you identify that can have you sacrificing just creating for the sake of creating what you think should exist in the world. And I think that sort of philosophy holds a lot of beautiful things back that could help the world and will now never be. Because instead, we're focusing on things that are a little bit more superficial. This is the exact question of at the top of so many, how do I even say this? Things that I wrestle with inside of my soul. I think there's gravity to even saying that, but the way you just phrased that, Michelle, and the way this conversation has taken a turn, this is one of the biggest challenges that I wrestle with on a continual basis is if you look at this from an entrepreneurial perspective and you're just looking at engagement, metric, conversions, click-through, sales, all those things, which is important to Tony's point of if you're doing this to make a living, uh, having a business mind and looking at this analytically and looking at it from a perspective of tracking trends, tracking analytics, you know, looking where the numbers go in terms of your conversions, your sales, all of those things are important. But one thing that that I started to get confused and frustrated by was this push and pull between giving the people what they want, so to speak, and how do you know what people want? Well, they respond to you through comments or emails, or more specifically in a business sense, they convert. They buy your product, they buy your books, they buy your courses. Like I'm clearly, if I'm selling well, then I must be giving people what they want because the numbers are reflecting that. But you know, one thing, and this is a funny example, and there are many more examples, but I started to notice that when I would post say a a short recipe video clip or image and a recipe, like a professionally shot recipe image and actually writing out the recipe or even maybe trying funneling them to a website to download one of my eBooks, it would get a certain number of likes, certain number of comments, shares, whatever. But then I would randomly post a photo of my French bulldog or a photo of me and I don't know, a beautiful woman or a photo of my cats. And those photos and those videos would start to get an exponential amount of more likes than my recipe content, right? Of the content that I'm actually trying to monetize, right? That, that I, because I don't make necessarily a direct living by posting pictures of, you know, my French bulldog, my cats, whatever, unless it's a sponsorship deal. My point is, this is an eternal conflict for me of do I give the people what they want? Because if, if a picture of my bulldog and my cats is getting, you know, 2000 likes and a recipe is getting 400 likes, well, clearly you want the bulldog and the cats. 
So why should I keep putting all the effort in doing photo shoots, videos, creating all these recipes if metrically they're not getting as much conversion or engagement? It starts to become this question of like, how much of it is giving the people what they want, i.e. hopefully converting to sales to support your business versus you being completely autonomous creatively and doing whatever the hell you want? I don't know that I gave any kind of an answer other than I'm echoing this conflict to you all because it's something that I continue to struggle with. It's like, it's hard. I I wrestle with it all the time. Well, I think another thing that we have to consider is we're not really as in control over all of this as we think that we are. And I think it's a little bit ignorant to assume, you know, the algorithm is a real thing and it's constantly changing. This is explored in the Social Dilemma documentary. And I think one of the feelings I got from that is simply that there's so much happening behind the scenes and and they actually have that visual at one point of being puppet masters over us as content creators, as well as our audiences. So, you know, maybe the algorithm right now, Jason, is showing more people your cat photos or dog photos or photos of you with women and not your food. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that your audience or your community likes that thing more than something else, which is what we've kind of been trained to believe. It may simply be what they're seeing. I mean, the other day, I was messaging with one of my most active, loyal, long-term community members, which is a word, a phrase I prefer over followers. And this woman like, is a big fan quote, fan of mine, which is a word I don't really love, but she's very involved and and passionate about the work that I do. And she had not seen any of my Instagram content. And I thought to myself, if she's not seeing this, how many people aren't seeing it? Who are they showing this to? And, And then when we look at what I think Tony was saying about like, just not going on social media as much anymore, especially if you see these documentaries or read the articles or watch YouTube videos about these things. And and YouTube's actually a great example. I never go on YouTube anymore. Like if I go on YouTube, I should I shouldn't say never. It is so incredibly rare. I used to spend a ton of time on there and creating and watching content. Now the only reason I go to YouTube is to find a very specific video every once in a while. So my big point is is that it's it's challenging because there's so much at play with all this work that we're doing. And we've been trained to think of it in one way, but everything is changing so frequently that our we can't even like base our ideas of what it takes to be successful anymore <laughs> off of practices that worked six months ago because the world is changing, the social media platforms are changing, we're changing as a result of all of these things. And that can be incredibly frustrating, which leads me back to agreeing with with Michelle's point where I personally, at this stage of my career, and this also may change because <laughs> just how I feel today doesn't mean that's how I'll always feel. But I'm with you, Michelle, on, on much preferring to find a way to ba- be balanced and to bring it in Tony's perspective as well. I'm a numbers person. I love studying these things. I've loved studying strategies. I, I do that for clients. I do that for myself. But at the end of the day, I don't feel good trying to fit myself in a box just to get certain results. Like That doesn't work for me. I'm not, I'm not currently willing to do that, but I used to be willing to do it. 
and I tried everything. And my heart goes out to you, the story you shared, Tony, and I'm, I'm so grateful that you did because I have like this whole visual of you going around and having these meetings. You know, I've been in my own version of that where like I saw the formulas of like what you should wear and when and like how things should look and what, you know, just constantly trying to shape myself and the way that I presented it and my work in order to get certain results. But going back to Jason and Michelle's point as well, so it's kind of summarizing it all. It doesn't always work, you know? And I think I got so exhausted and burnt out by that. I'm like, why am I doing things that I don't really want to do to get results that I might not even get? It's just not worth it for me. I'd so much rather post whatever I feel like and maybe it'll work out. I, I also, to tie up my my comment before we actually have to tie up the whole episode, because sadly, <laughs> uh, we could probably talk for hours about all of this, but we're going to be wrapping in uh, the next 10 minutes. I've noticed this a lot on TikTok. And I think TikTok is incredibly interesting because it's kind of like the baby of the social media world right now, but also one of the biggest success stories that any of us have seen in a while, if ever. And I'm fascinated by the seemingly super strong desire that a lot of TikTok creators have to be viral. I mean, they say it often. It's like, ooh, I hope this video goes viral. Or the comments will be like, why hasn't this video gone viral yet? Like there's this there's like this obsession on that platform with going viral because it's very common on there. It's very easy compared to Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube right now to get a ton of views on your content. And what's interesting about that platform though is what we're seeing on there is very controlled by the algorithm. And every once in a while, I am shown on what they call the For You page on TikTok, which is like the Discover's organics section of it. Every once in a while, I see a video that has barely received any views or any likes. And sometimes I'll go and look at the content that people I know are putting out and they're doing great things that you would think would work that are fitting into that formula and it's not working on there. And so it leads me back to this idea and same thing with Instagram. It's like you could spend all of this time trying to create viral content, trying to create the content that you think people want, and they may never see it. Or they may, you know, the algorithm just might not pick it up for whatever reason, despite you using the right hashtag and description and the right filters and the right song and all these other factors. And I don't know, I guess like it brings me back to that heartbreaking feeling of how many people's lives are being based on this hope that if they just do the right steps, they will get these certain results. And I just wonder how much that's going to affect our long-term mental health. And it's a tricky thing. It's complicated. And we all have our different views on this. And I'm so grateful for Michelle and Tony coming on to talk about this and bringing it full circle to the big focus of each of yours right now on being friendly. I think we need to be friendly with other people just as much as we're friendly with ourselves. And each of us are figuring out what that means. You know, that does mean something different to each person. And I am so grateful for each of you to have such a positive, passionate, and educated, for lack of a better word, viewpoint on all this because you've been doing this work for so long. You're very educated as vegans and content creators, and you're so eloquent and happy. And I, I just, I loved looking through your book. 
everything in there just makes me drool. And I wish I didn't have to make any of it. I wish that each of you could just make me the food. (laughs) But you've thought of so much in there. It's so unbelievable. And I also am so grateful that we veered off of the topic of your cookbook to talk about some of these deeper things that have affected each of our lives. So thank you so much for that. And I hope we get to do this again. We got to do it with Tony twice. And Michelle, we might have to have you on a second time or both of you on again. Thank you so much for having us. I am so... It's weird how I didn't even know how passionately I was feeling. And then as we were talking about things, I could feel them burning inside me like, oh my gosh, either yes, or I don't want to do that. Or you're right, that is bothering me. And I appreciate how you bring those feelings up within me. Yeah, I feel similarly. And I it's just so nice to be in a space where we can talk freely, openly, and also push each other more deeply with all of you who I feel like we all have walked a semi-similar path over the past decade, which is really cool. And I know we've touched on like a lot of heavy things, which can feel a little bit overwhelming and a little bit negative, but I think it's important to leave things looking positive. And from scrolling way back to the beginning, we were talking about the word vegan and all the heaviness that carries with it. Each of us has the ability to claim that word in whatever way we want. We can walk through the world as friendly, happy, outgoing vegans. (laughs) And so I think it's so important to do that. And same thing with the internet. We can model the type of internet we want to exist by how we use it, what we share on it. And so any ways that we can take our being and how we walk through the world and instead of responding to what exists now, trying to be conscientious, and this is something I'm going to try and be better at, about doing what I think I want to exist rather than reacting to the chaos around me. And I feel like that's going to take a big weight off of just the exhaustion that I feel sometimes opening my computer even when there is just so much going on. So yeah, I feel like I'm leaving this feeling empowered to embrace just a more positive direction in all of these things. So thank you both. All three of you. (laughs) Also, you said reaction, and then it reminded me of my reaction to you, Michelle. And I feel a little bit self-conscious about how I disagreed with you. And I did want to say sorry for that, but also that I love being a content creator. And I know we shared a lot of more personal feelings about that today, but I really love it. And I especially love the connections I make with people. And so while I do care about business and I studied business in school and I value that part, what keeps me in this is not making money because I don't do a lot of that. I It is the connections I make with people like Whitney and Jason and Michelle and all of the people who reach out to me. So I just wanted to clarify that too. It's beautiful. I just love the depth and the emotion and authenticity that we explored on this episode. And kudos to you, Tony and Michelle, for your just absolutely gorgeous and beautiful and radiant new cookbook. Your beautiful faces are just beaming off the cover of the Friendly Vegan Cookbook. It's 100 Essential Recipes to Share with Vegans and Omnivores alike. I think that is the key. One of the biggest things, I think, is to sit down at a table where people are eating and enjoying food in different ways and coming together to share a meal together is one of the greatest joys in life. So 
kudos and congratulations to both of you for sharing this gorgeous, creative piece of art with the world. We will absolutely share it with as many people as possible to get them enjoying your delicious recipes. And for you, dear listener, you can find this book wherever books are sold, whatever your favorite retailers are. Uh, We're big fans of IndieBound. We really love encouraging you, if possible, to support independent booksellers right now, physically going down if you are open to that and able to do that, and supporting independent bookstores because uh, they are in a crisis right now in many, many cities. And making sure that independent businesses and bookstores stay open is really, really crucial to the diversity and lifeblood uh, of our economic system. So I just wanted to throw that in there. For links to the Friendly Vegan Cookbook, to follow up with Michelle and Tony's work online, we will have links to all of their social media handles and their individual websites, along with links to buy this book at our website, which again is wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Just go and click the podcast section in the top right corner. It will take you to this episode, our previous episode with Tony back from August of 2020, and all of the, well, I'll say hundreds. We're closing in on hundreds of episodes for you to enjoy. So if you're a first-time listener or a long-time community member, thank you so much for your support of This Might Get Uncomfortable. Huge props to you, Tony and Michelle. We adore you. We can't wait to see you in person again, hopefully soon. And we will catch you again soon with another episode of the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 